Greetings from Kiev, and welcome to another episode of Black Diplomats Podcast. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. This week, I'm interviewing Michael McFall, former U.S. Ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. Ambassador McFall, who is a chief architect of the Reset with Russia, worked on the U.S. National Security Council as special assistant to President Barack Obama and senior director of Russian and Eurasian Affairs. His work on Russia spans more than 30 years, and he currently uses that expertise and experience as a professor of political science at Stanford University. On this episode, we talk about McFall's time as ambassador to Russia, as well as his thoughts on Russian colonialism, what it's like to negotiate with Putin face-to-face, and how America should respond to Kremlin aggression against Ukraine. Let's start the show. Ambassador McFall, you know, I've always wanted to interview you. I've been following you since you went uh, to Moscow as U.S. ambassador, and I was aware of you uh, as your work on the Security Council, um, you know, back during the Obama years. But before we even get into this, I always ask people who I interview for the podcast, how are you doing? Just forget all the high-level political stuff. I just think that, you know, this world makes us go insane. And just how is your mental health doing? Well, that's very kind of you to ask. Uh, I should ask how you're doing if you're in Kiev. And I'm saying <laughs> quiet Palo Alto right now. Um, I'm doing fine. I mean, compared to, it's always compared to what? Uh, you know, I got my day-to-day problems and I run a big think tank and I'm teaching a brand new course uh, this quarter on social mobilization and democratic breakthroughs, by the way. Um, Friday, we're doing South Africa versus Zimbabwe. So uh, that's a challenge when you do, and I'm teaching with a colleague of mine from Egypt. So that, that's a big challenge. And um, and then, as we say in political science, the exogenous shock to my calendar of uh, events where you're at right now have, have complicated things, but I'm doing just fine. Thanks for asking. No, I definitely appreciate that. People here in Kiev, it, it, there are various modes of attitude. So you have people who are generally anxious about what's happening. And so people are used to the uh, to a Russian uh, presence here. And as you know, over in the States, uh, the media frame it, frames it as when will Russia invade again? And over here, as you know, they're already here, right? And so- Right. So and and people are used to it. I mean, you know, uh, Crimea was illegally annexed. And then, you know, that the Russian presence, along with their support of the um, separatist groups, are in Luhansk and also in the Donbass. So people are used to, to, to this being here. It's just a new level of anxiety. And the question is, is Russia going to uh, launch another attack, and w- and how different will it be from 2014? So that's the anxiety that is here. So I just so so you know the thing is I can always leave whenever I want. So I it, it's kind of personal for me because I have friends here who function as family, and I worry about them. Right, of course. Well, that's understandable. Yeah. So it's a real so it's a human element to this that I always remind people of anytime I'm asked to appear on television and to discuss this subject. Right. So for for you, this is very familiar territory because just as you were completing your ambassadorship, uh, the 2014 invasion took place. Do you mind taking our listeners back to what those, you know, what that time was like as you were trying to do your job to help ease tensions here and what unfolded? Uh, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, you're right. Um, I left Moscow uh, the day that we learned publicly that Putin had seized Crimea. <clears throat> and by the way, when I landed in San Francisco, I did call back to the, you know, to the White House and the State Department saying maybe I should go back. Um, and I remember one of my colleagues at the White House said, Mike, this is way bigger than you. Uh, you're not going to be able to do much good uh, in this crisis. And that turned out to be uh, prophetic because, you know, there's certain, when it gets to certain levels, ambassadors, uh, it goes over their head, right? Um, 
But the buildup is is interesting to remember and how it's similar and different. Uh, as you described, this is somewhat similar and somewhat an extension and, and, and different. Back then, to remind everybody, because it's ancient history, um, President Yanukovych was about to sign, or so we thought, an accession agreement for the European Union. Um, this was in the fall of 2013. And um, by the way, countries sign accession agreements and don't join the EU for decades. I think I think Turkey signed one in the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. But the Russian government made it very clear to me, as the you know the representative of the government in Moscow at the time, and including some very senior people, that they did not accept this. They this was they were going to do everything they could to block it. I would try to explain. You know what's the big deal? It's it's this can be win-win. We, United States of America, we're in multiple trade organizations and treaties. We're we're part of the WTO and we're also part of NAFTA. And uh, you know we we could why can't we think of this as good for Russia, good for Ukraine, good for the EU? But it was explained to me that is not Putin's view, and they're going to do whatever it takes to stop it. And they did, by the way. Uh, they wanted to give Yanukovych eight billion. Uh, they ended up giving him 15 billion, but he didn't sign that agreement. Um, and I remember meeting somebody. What do you mean by giving him 15 billion? I don't think. Yeah. What 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 was this financial? Good. Thank you for stopping me on that. I was being too flippant. Uh, they provided a financial package and loans um, that that we estimated to be about 15 billion dollars in transfers. And remember. Uh, um, Yanukovych was about to run for re-election, so he needed that money, in his view, to run for re-election. And he told our folks on the side, like, don't jam me now, let me get through re-election, and then I'll sign this document. But it was a very, you know, it was Russia versus the EU. We were pushing him to sign. He was trying to explain why he couldn't sign, and he didn't sign. And it was the Russians that gave him the 15 billion? Yes, Russian government. I mean, I'm sure if uh, Sergei Lavrov were on our call, he would, he would say I'm, I'm simplifying things too much, but in essence, that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I, I was over at, you know, in Russia, it's called the White House where the government sits. Um, um, and I was over there a few days later and I saw a very senior guy over there. Um, it was a private conversation, so I won't use his name, but he said, hey, Mike, we won. And I said, yeah, you did. Uh, but it's a long game. You know, it's just one iteration and, and we'll see where this goes. But both of us had wrong uh our assessment at that moment because because yanukovych did what he did and we you know calculated what we did representing washington and moscow but the people of ukraine had a different response um as you know better than i do um, um and one guy in particular his name's mustafa naim uh got onto facebook after yanukovych made that decision and said he's a journalist here by the way for people who are listening he's a he's a longtime journalist here and um you know of afghan descent very talented interesting guy by the way i, yeah. I always inter enjoy interacting with him but you know he went online and said we can't accept this and he said join me on the on the square Mondan. and as a result of him not signing that document that's when you had these giant demonstrations and and i want to be clear you know they lasted for a long time and and tragically you know uh, over 100 people were killed uh by the government uh some other government forces uh, i think were killed as well from sitting in moscow watching this this entire time i want to be very clear our main objective as the obama administration was to try to defuse this crisis uh our assessment was uh, Ukraine didn't need another revolution. Uh, better to do a peaceful negotiated settlement than not. Uh, we did some things during that that were mistakes. I'm happy to talk about them if you're interested. But that was our yeah. main objective. That was that was a main diplomatic objective. And um, in February 2014, we thought we had a breakthrough. Uh, when Yanukovych met with three Ukrainian opposition leaders, signed an agreement it looked like it was the end of this standoff and and by that time there had been you know serious bloodshed and i remember very vividly terrell because i was at the sochi olympics at the time as part of the american delegation to the winter olympics on my blackberry i was there with a guy named bill burns who's the deputy secretary of state now he's the head of the cia but then he was a deputy secretary of state and we thought you know we dodged a bullet uh 
But then hours later, uh, it turned out that the street was not going to uh, acknowledge that agreement and it was rejected uh, when when they went, you know, their interlocutors went to talk about it. And Yanukovych decided to flee and he left the country. I still to this day do not understand why he left so quickly. I've heard lots of theories in Moscow, uh, but but it's still a bit strange to me. Why didn't he go to you know the eastern part of the country? Uh, he would have been perfectly safe there. He fled. He went to Rostov, Russia, um, and then you know the next day was okay. The revolution is, is victorious. That you know my colleagues in Washington and Kiev writing me to say that, um, but I was nervous. I'll tell you honestly because I that's when I thought Putin will not accept this. This time around, he did in 2004 without using violence. Uh, but that time around, he had a different approach. And that's when he seized Crimea, supported the separatists in Eastern Ukraine, in my view, as a response to uh, what he would describe as a color revolution orchestrated by the CIA, what I would describe as a spontaneous uh, people power movement that then got violent because of Yanukovych. But you know, that was the tragedy of 2014. And in a way, right now we're running a replay of that. Uh, you know, it's a it's kind of a rerun because Putin is dissatisfied with the government in the city where you're at. Uh, he doesn't like the way that Zelensky initially flirted with negotiating with him and then pivoted away. Um, and so he's decided, you know, to threaten that re that government with this this buildup that he's put in place today. Right. So I want to talk to you about negotiating with Putin because you've been in a room with him numerous times. And, and, and so in Washington, many people are figuring out ways to best deal with him. And I'm speaking to a few people's um, offices, you know, people who have power to make decisions, right. You know, about how to best deal with him and people in Ukraine are also offering their words, which is basically sanctions um, of, of his inner circle. And, you know, Navalny last summer, his foundation put out a list of the Kremlin's, you know, closest allies in regards to surgically targeting them. So if, you know, what would be your advice on how to best um, counter Putin's aggression against Ukraine, um, you know, in a way to make them really think twice? Yeah, that's a really hard question, and I don't have a good answer. I want to say that at the outset. Um, but let me say a few things about the way I understand Putin as somebody who, who I have been in the room with him. And uh, I met him first in 1991, so we go way back. Uh, and I've wow, written a lot wow. about him, and, and I know his crowd you know, fairly well, and I know the hardliners around him. I used to deal with them when I was ambassador. I, I would say a couple of things that I think are, are, are misunderstood about his worldview. Um, one is that I think he's way more ideological than a lot of my colleagues in academia and government believe, right? We kind of superimpose our world framework. We're all kind of rational actors, utility maximizers here in the United States, and we do a cost-benefit analysis, and we're trying to change his calculus about that. And, and that's all, that, that needs to be part of it. But I think there's, there's two pieces that are missing uh, that comes from his particular worldview compared to, you know, others, you know, trying to figure him out from afar. First, he's threatened by democracy and color revolutions and, and things like that. Uh, to go back to our earlier part of our conversation, he does see the world in autocrats versus Democrats. He would use different language, but that there are, uh, their, their world is divided that way. And he just thinks of himself as the defender of the conservative orthodox uh, set of ideas in the world. He thinks the West is out to get him uh, and out to overthrow his regime. And, and when, when I see you know, popular demonstrations in, in places like Serbia in 2000, all the way to Russia 2011 and the Arab Spring and Ukraine, that's my perspective. He sees the hand of the CIA, the deep state, running plays to overthrow dictators that we don't like. And by the way, it's not a white and black story. I want to be honest. Like there are times when the United States has used military force to overthrow regimes. Yeah. And yeah. there has been time when the CIA has funded uh, uh, groups to overthrow regimes we don't like. So it is black and white. It's not, it's not, 
it's not black and white, excuse me. And he's, I've, I've listened to him talk about it. There's, there are threads of truth to what he says. But the, but, and that means that it's not, you know, in my view, the standoff right now is not about NATO expansion. It's about this, this thing. If you, if you look, you know, if you look at where, where relations took a real turn for the worst, it's always been about color revolutions. It hasn't been about NATO expansion. It's been Georgia 2003, Ukraine 2004, the Arab Spring, Bolotnaya, the demonstrations in Russia in 2011, and and Maidan in 2014. You know, the first the first wave, the, the second big wave of NATO expansion that took place on Putin's watch in 2002. You know, people should go back and read what he said. He was pretty relaxed about it because back then it was just months after September 11th. And back then he thought that he had a real ally and partner in George W. Bush in fighting a common enemy, global terrorism. And this other thing didn't seem that important to him at the time. And I've been in the room where he's talked about uh, George W. Bush. He has a fond, fond personal memory of his time with bush in a way that he does not talk about you know my old boss barack obama at all that way he's very flippant <laughs> about my boss uh but in fact the first time we met him in 2009 with president obama and, and prime minister putin he he went out of his way to say bush was a good guy it's the deep state and and all those folks doing that stuff so that's the first thing that i think people need to understand democracy autocracy you know, good guys and bad guys, ideological struggle. It's not just about cost-benefit analysis of how Zbarebank will do. But the second thing is, is something that I actually have seen you reference from time to time that I think is very important for people to understand, that we are 30 years out from the collapse of the last giant European empire. Um, and, and that, remember, before the Soviet Union, they literally called themselves empire. They said, we are the Russian empire, right? Imperial Russia, they didn't even try to, to, to decorate it, right? At least- yeah, but, but it was true, but they expanded for like hundreds of years though. I mean, that, that's that's the thing about it. I think it was what, it total with, with the house of Romanov, et cetera, you go back, it's around more than 300 years, if I'm not mistaken. You're probably more expert than I, but- Yeah, yeah, I mean, but it is, it's old, it goes back. It's old and long and and, but I think, you know, sometimes here in the, in, in the United States, I've had this conversation with some of my colleagues who self-identify as progressives, uh, you know, academics and politicians. Um, and I think because it's, it's not um, north-south and it's, it's contiguous as, as, as opposed to, you know, in, in Africa or something, they, they, don't, they don't use the same mental construct, but, but you know, um, I wrote my PhD dissertation, I don't know if you know this, about national liberation movements in Southern Africa. Yeah, I looked at, yeah, I saw you, yeah. So, uh, you know, I used to write about British imperialism and Portuguese imperialism, and then Soviets and Americans and Cubans and how they got all involved there. And I think that's the right analytic framework to apply here. And Putin, you know, he laments the collapse of the empire. You, you don't need to believe me, read what he said. And he particularly laments in his view, the, the breakup of the Slavic nation, nations, I should say. He thinks they're one nation, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus. He thinks the collapse of the Soviet Union tore them apart in an unjust way. But even though the 14th, like the 15th republics, they all weren't Slavic. I mean, you got Central Asia, and then you have Moldova, which is not Slavic. I mean, like they're, you know, Romania, you know, and then you have the Baltics, and neither, none, none of which were Slavic, but go ahead. Well, that's, I'm glad you said that, because if you read closely what Putin says, um, he's not trying to recreate the entire empire. Uh, I don't believe he is. And I, I think he think I don't think my let me just say my witness and watching him and, and studying him and listening to him talk. Um, I, he does think in pretty ethnic terms. Um, um, he does. I, I'm not. No, I agree. No, it's clear. It's clear. No, no, you're totally right about that. I mean, yeah, you just listen to what he says. Yeah, go ahead. For him, he's willing to give up the non-Slavic, dare I say, white parts of the empire. That's correct. Yeah. I, and he I, still yeah, wants yeah. to dominate that space, you know, just like like France and, and, and Britain wanted to dominate their post-imperial spaces, commonwealths and things like that. But when it comes to the, the Slavic parts of that, 
he thinks they need to be reunited. Um, and that's why he's so obsessed with Ukraine, because he doesn't, he fundamentally doesn't think that Ukrainians are a separate ethnicity, that Ukraine is a separate language. I mean, he understands it, but he thinks it's, it, you know, it should, they shouldn't be different. And that's the part that he wants to, to keep hold. And I, you know, I think about, it, I used to study, I studied in Great Britain and it's, it kind of reminds me of like, Great Britain is the Scots and the, you know, there's, there's the core of the empire that they kept together. They let go of the other parts, but, but they still want to keep together Scotland and Wales and, and, and Northern Ireland and Britain. Uh, I think that's a kind of useful metaphor for thinking about how Putin thinks about his post-imperial world. And I want to be clear, I think he's dead wrong about that. Uh, I think he, he, he grossly distorts the history of, of Ukraine to make those arguments. I'm just trying to explain from my perspective how I think Putin thinks of that part of the world. I wanted to go back to your tweets because I totally agree with you. And one, you know, um, Ambassador, I, you know, I reference this a lot. And I think that Putin specifically when he talks about Ukraine, but not only just Ukraine from that Slavic standpoint, which you're 100% correct about. Um, I think that his, eth the, his ethnic lens comes from this, not only just the Soviet point of view, but the imperial point of view, because they, because whether it's the, the Russian empire or the Soviet union, they both had a racial lens on how they view the rest of these republics. You know, and so, and I'll give you a brief story of it is that I was in Georgia and I was speaking to a, an older man whose daughter married a Nigerian guy. And I'm just curious about, Hey, what did you think about your daughter bringing home this Nigerian guy? Cause I'm thinking with my then, you know, kind of American context of, Hey, maybe he wasn't, you know, in agreement with his daughter, bringing this black guy home. And so he told me the story about him studying in Russia in Moscow in this during the Soviet period. And he said they were selling us this story about the Soviet Union being a country of all peoples and full of diversity. But he said as a Georgian, I felt like I was like a sabak, like cuck sabak, like a dog. Like they treat me, I felt like a like they treated us like dogs. And if you talk to people in the Caucasus, that's the general view they'll tell you. That's certainly what they told me. Um and and, and so I think that it not only comes from this kind of Slavic approach of, hey, you know, the Slavics as white people, it, it comes from a, a racial lens that the that the Soviet Union Empire used dating back hundreds of years, right? You know, and so when Langston Hughes went to Central Asia, he said that there were, the, the buses were partitioned for Russians sitting in one side and the Central Asians in another. So it was pretty much like some crossed out um, uh, segregation. So they have that racial lens. What I find interesting in this field is that for a long time, people resisted this notion of looking at it through that way because they saw it as Americans imposing this racial framework onto the field of Russian studies. And I've always, um, I always argued against that. That's fascinating. That's, those are great stories. And I didn't know that about Langston Hughes in Central Asia. That's, that's a really interesting story. I mean, I'm, I don't want to pretend I'm an expert on it. I'm glad, by the way, we need more experts on the part, the parts that were colonized, right? Uh, so we yeah. have that perspective when we talk about that part of the world. I, you know, we're, we're very Moscow-centric in Russian studies, and that is, I think is a, it, it, it has a, it's part of the reason why we didn't get the collapse of the Soviet Union right, by the way, because we weren't looking at national liberation movements within those republics you were just talking about. We, did, we didn't have a good thread on that um, and we missed some things. Um, all I would say, you know, uh, anecdotally is, you know, I've lived in the Russia, Soviet Union seven or eight years of my life, you know, since 1983. And um, that's my personal impression for sure. I, I, just another footnote of my history, when I lived there in 1985, my neighbor was from Ghana uh, in my dorm. And uh, I became very interested in, you know, why are all these students from the developing world studying here in Moscow? And um, uh, Adam was his name. He kind of took me in and um, it was really hard to find food there at that time. And so I ate a lot of Ghanaian stews for dinner, <laughs> thanks to Adam. But I, I really kind of got into the African community 
uh, Patrice Lumumba in particular, and and learned about you know their lives. It, you know, this is 1985, kind of a, a time when the Soviet right Gorbachev came to power. The the, the right. semester I was there, and it was, you know, it it wasn't again. It wasn't all black and white because the the rhetoric of the Soviet Union. Well, unlike sometimes the rhetoric of my own country, by the way, uh, was all yeah, about yeah. peace, love, and understanding, and multi-ethnicity, and all that. Um, and you know, they best definitely in kind of Soviet propaganda had a pretty strong story about that and their multi-ethnic community in the Soviet Union and within the Russian Federation. Very important to point that out, right? Twenty percent. Yeah, absolutely. Of, they have ethnic republics within Russia, not just in the Soviet Union. Um, but the you know the reality of 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 life uh, most certainly for my friends uh was very different than that 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 soaring rhetoric yeah absolutely but you know one of the i want to go back to a tweet that you wrote which which really drew me in because it's so again there you, your this tweet reflects my thoughts and you tweeted um back in january 22nd you said moscow colonized ukraine for hundreds of years no different from british french Portuguese, etc., colonization around the world. If you are against imperialism and for decolonization, you must support Ukrainian sovereignty. Very few people look at it through that lens. But if you but 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 the thing is, is that when you're here, and I think that's the importance of having expertise outside of the lens of Moscow, because whether I was in Georgia, Gruzia, as we say in Russian, or if you know and you're in Ukraine. Ukrainians look at it as these they, these people in Moscow want to colonize us, and they use that language. They say they treat us like we are lesser. Yeah, very much so. And so in America, as you would know, Ambassador McFall, um, you, you know, you would see you you see this conflict, and Americans would think these are just two groups of white people fighting each other. Like what what's going on? And as both you and I know, that's just not true at all. You know, and so. Right, right. I mean, they do. They look at us two white people in the way that I frame it to uh, explain it to people. I would say, how would you feel? You know, just imagine going to the continent of Africa and bunching up Nigerians and Ghanaians and Ethiopians into one bunch. You wouldn't do that right, even though you can make the argument that they look the same. That's the same way that I would that I explain Belarusians and Ukrainians, etc. That's a great that's a great analogy. I love that a lot. I'm going to I'm going to use that. You should. You should. I mean, that yeah, tweet yeah. got me in a lot of trouble, by the way. I'm glad you. Why it. though? But why? Why? Why did it get you in trouble? Well, I think you're really onto something here. That is, um, you know, if if Ukraine was located in Latin America um, and they looked differently, um, it would be easier for Americans to understand what you just described, right? But that it's contiguous, and that they're ethnically uh you know they look the same and we of course don't most americans don't speak russian or ukrainian right um and most americans have never met a ukrainian i mean i think that's a really important thing too like we just have so little in interaction with uh people from ukraine that that's why we we get the framework wrong but but i think um but i think it's right and and by the way you can have a lot of historical and language and cultural um, uh, connectivity that doesn't give you a right to invade that country, right? Like, so, you know, I grew up in Montana, uh, you know, right across the border was Canada. I, I grew up in a town of 3,000 people, about an hour from Canada. And, you know, I, we used to see Canadians all the time. We watched the same, you know, Jetsons and everything. And uh, we spoke the English the same way. We didn't even have a different accents, but, but, but nobody would say, well, that gives us a right to go take Alberta, right? So, so I think that's a that's a good that's a good and and also like uh, I really appreciate what you said about West Africans versus like of course that would be really crude to, to talk about those nation people from those countries, let alone different ethnic communities. This the same. Um, I spent a summer in, uh, you know, in Emo State, Nigeria, and, you know, for people in eastern Nigeria, the people in the north were as different from them as, as people in America, by the way, uh, uh, family in America, you know, I mean, um, which is to say we, we've got to be careful about just superimposing our, our constructs uh, 
in places that, that, that we just need to understand better. I, I hate to sound so banal, but we really do. And we really need people to help us understand those places better. I think that's a that's an indictment of, um, you know, places like Stanford, where I work, like, like we don't have a we don't have a program on Ukrainian studies. We have a program on Ukrainian studies, but we don't have deep expertise on the Caucasus or Ukraine or Central Asia. I I think that's a and that's a, something we should work on. Yeah, we had. I went to the University of Illinois, and I have a Reese degree, Russian East European Eurasian Studies. Oh well, you that uh, that they're they're one of the best though. That's yeah. Yeah. And I went to, and, and I went to Indiana University's language school, one of their summer, their Suiso program. Yeah, and they had everything. Um, now the thing about it, I think that the field, because I, I go to ACs every year. I think you were um at the one, I don't know if it was this year, but last year. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and so I think that the ACs um organization is trying to do uh, a better job of ushering in a new era of diversifying these programs as well as the people as well as the people who are recruited into them because i think um i want to go back to your earlier point about how you said that that tweet because this is not the only tweet that you said about colonialism right but i think that, but i think that um I'm, I'm i'm really interested in why people how this would get you in trouble because i think it helps us to understand this conflict you know and what's happening and so if we don't understand, because it goes back to your point about the ethnic, uh, how P Putin sees things through an ethnic lens. And if we don't understand that, then we're not going to get to the base of what's really happening. That's right. You know, and I'll, I, I, I par I'm paraphrasing now, but when it really hit me over the head was uh, in a meeting I was in with uh, Vice President Biden, now President Biden, and Prime Minister Putin. It was March 2011. Um, and, you know, it was going back in some kind of contentious way about some issue. I think it was Georgia, by the way, that I remember, Terrell, because we were talking about Georgia at length at that time, because Vice President Biden was kind of our point person for Georgia in the Obama administration. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he was kind of he was kind of in charge of Georgia, Ukraine. Uh, Obama was in charge of Russia. It was it was definitely an informal division of labor. Um, Tragically, President Obama never made it to Tbilisi or Kiev, uh, despite my my lobbying. But but President Biden, uh, Vice President Biden, went there. And at one point in this conversation, um, he he said literally something to this effect. He said, "You know, you guys." And he's he he, and by the way, Putin. I'm I'm trying to stare at you through Zoom, but Putin <laughs> has this way of like staring at you, and he does, and it's scary. And it happened a couple of times to me personally. Where he was really upset with me personally and and he, he made me feel it um but he kind of leaned in with biden he said you know one of the problems you guys have is you look at us and you see you see us and you and you look at us you know he's pointing to his white skin and he thinks he said you think we think like you do but we don't we're different and it was like we all <laughs> like whoa that was intense uh and we were all trying to afterwards like what exactly did he mean um and by the way i was thinking about you know who my boss at the time was uh president obama and and the way that he 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 also um you know who is the us in this but he was trying to make a point right like like uh the slavic the slavic mindset is different from the western mindset but it also made the point about how you know these these racial categories um play a role in the way that he sees the world that wow see see wow that that's very revelatory i know i'm gonna um uh close out here um and ask you about some lessons learned from that experience that you had with the obama administration because you're you know widely considered to be the architect of the reset right you know you're the person who kind of architected everything there's people are looking at hillary clinton but it's really you you know that were really was at the heart of this. And so when you think about the reset um, back during the Obama administration and looking at right now, what are some things that you wish that the that that you could have done? And if you could have made some adjustments, would that have changed the course of history as we know it in regards to U.S. Russia relations, how they would have approached Ukraine and the rest of their neighbors? Yeah, that's a that's a big hard question. Um, I've thought a lot about it. In fact, I even wrote a whole book about it in some ways. 
I got to read it. Wrestle with it. Uh, it's called From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. It's about many other things, but Tara, I really wrote it to, to try to answer your question, right? Because because it wasn't just for me personally, my five years in the Obama administration, in many ways, it, it's, a, it's a question about my entire academic and political active life, right? Because I was of the view as a young uh, young scholar slash activist, and I've, you know, I've tried to navigate that in a, in a complicated way, not always successfully, by the way. Uh, but, you know, I believe that when the Soviet Union collapsed, this was an opportunity for democracy to take root in Russia and the rest of the region, and that would, would bring us closer together. I, I firmly believe that. I want to admit it, uh, you know, living in, in Moscow in 1990-91. I also was a Fulbright scholar uh, in 1990-91 and, and then going right. back there many times. I lived there in 92 and 94, 95. I lived there for Carnegie. I, I definitely thought that that was possible. And then, you know, I got the chance in the government to take a run at it at the highest levels. And I, I had complete backing and support from President Obama. I mean, uh, I love that guy. He, he was he was a fantastic I think he's a fantastic president, but he was also a fantastic boss and, and a great human being and really good to me. And he always, you know, he kind of got it conceptually. Uh, he ran with it. And, and I think, you know, at the at 30,000 feet, I think the play, the, you know, the strategy we had was the right one. Remember, our, our goal was always, first and foremost, to make the American people safer and better off. Um, and so in the reset, we did things like signing the New START Treaty because we thought that getting rid of nuclear mm -hmm. weapons was good for Americans. And, you know, we thought it was good for the world. Um, you know, uh, having an Iran nuclear agreement meant working with the Russians. And we thought that was good for America and good for the world. You know, so that in, in, in State Department lingo, they're called deliverables, right? We had a lot of deliverables during the heyday of the reset. I think it was one of the most cooperative periods in U.S. Russian history or U.S. Soviet history. You know, it was like we were really putting points on the board. Um, uh, and then two things happened that that were not of our control. Um, one was back to our original conversation was the Arab Spring and this this explosion of of issues that we didn't think we were going to deal with. That then complicated our relations with Moscow because Putin had a very different way of looking at that. And then at the end of that year, 2011, you had these massive demonstrations in Russia uh, against Putin. And you know we did not encourage that. We didn't you know we didn't fund it. All that propaganda is is propaganda. But that complicated our relationship with Putin. Uh, and then the second thing is he came back. Remember, most of the reset was with the guy that people have forgotten. Medvedev, yeah, Medvedev, Dmitry Medvedev, yeah. And, you know, to people who never met Medvedev and Putin and weren't really paying attention, it's easy to say, well, you know, Putin, Medvedev was just his puppet and didn't have any power. But I got to tell you, honestly, I, I dealt with both of those gentlemen in, in real time. Um, and they did, they had different worldviews. Medvedev was not. Uh, worried about color revolutions, and he wanted to join the West. And he was a he was a super, you know, modernizer guy. And he saw in, in President Obama somebody of his generation, lawyers. Um, and so when we lost him as a partner, and we got Putin, uh, things became a lot harder. And th so those are those are two things we didn't have any control over. In my, uh, you know, we don't get to choose who's in the Kremlin, and we don't get to choose when people demonstrate. Well, I was getting ready to say it, yeah. Because I was getting ready to say the thing, you know, when I think about, you said that uh, those Obama years when you had those liberal bowls were some of the most cooperative years ever. You know, when I think about Reagan, right, you know, when you think about the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of people don't know when you think about the nuclear weapons dynamic, there were tens of thousands of nuclear weapons in existence between America and Russia. It was upwards of 70,000. You know, now it's around 14,000 with America and Russia holding around 90% of those. And it ultimately came down to Gorbachev. You know, you have to have somebody in the Kremlin who wants to play ball, right? And, you know, right? Because you remember, because, you know, because you wrote because you wrote a, P, a, 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 um, a paper about this and I read it and I cited it several times. 
um, because people were accusing Obama of being weak in numerous categories. Because remember, he wanted to have the world where he wanted to reduce the number of nuclear weapons down, right? But 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 Putin didn't want to play ball, and that's really as simple as that, right? Takes two to tango. Yep, and we yeah. did not have a partner. But that point you made about Reagan is also really important, and there's a lot of mythology about how the Cold War ended. But the, the Cold War ended because Mikhail Gorbachev became the leader of the Soviet Union. I mean, without right. that, <laughs> he doesn't get all the cooperative things, right? And and I, I think, you know, most certainly I've the closer when you're in the government and you see individuals, it makes it look like they have impact. The farther away you get both historically and, and you know, physically, it makes it look like they're rational unitary actors. But most certainly in my view and my scholarship, my personal experience, uh, leaders matter a lot. But I'm, I'm not being as critical as I should be about mistakes. We did make some mistakes. Like what? When, when you think about it, like just what's one of the ones that come to your mind? One in particular, and it, it wouldn't have saved anything, but it was a, it was a pivotal moment for Medvedev. Remember, Medvedev uh, supported us in using military force against Gaddafi in 2011. That was a huge, hard decision he made he didn't support, but he abstained in the UN Security Council, and he knew by abstaining that meant we were going to bomb. And I was in the room when he agreed that he was going to go with us. It was very risky. Uh, Putin didn't support him. Uh, and I think, you know, in a way that was the end of maybe it was always the game plan for Putin to come back. But I think that was a really risky time for uh, Medvedev. But his argument to Putin why he should be president was that it was a good cop, bad cop thing. You know, Volodya, I, I don't actually know how they talk to each other, but you know, <laughs> I'm the guy that can deal with Obama. I'm the guy that can, can do things that are good for us with the West. You know, I should be president to do that. And you run the economy and you do this other stuff. And for a while that argument worked. Remember Medvedev wanted to be reelected and he only had to win one vote. Vladimir Putin, you just had to win one vote to be reelected. And his campaign, therefore, was I'm the guy that can get things done that are good for us. And in the spring of 2011, right when uh, all of that drama was happening uh, with Libya and things went wrong, like we, you know, Medvedev was right. We, we said we we're just going to do a limited operation there. And, you know, as my mom would say, you know, shit happened. Uh, and and yeah. uh, that I don't say that just so you feel clear. I don't say that. I'm just quoting my mom. Um, and <laughs> and and, you know, suddenly, you know, Gaddafi got killed. I mean, that was never our game plan. I know that for a fact. I worked at the White House at the time. The Security Council, before you went to the ambassadorship, I, the people don't know that you were on the Security Council. I worked for three years yeah. at the National Security Council um, for Russian Central Asia at the time. But Right in the heat of that, you know, Medvedev needed a win in U.S.-Russian relations, and we were negotiating um, an agreement about missile defense cooperation. And it sounds really trivial now, and probably was trivial. Uh, it would not have stopped the, the the train of confrontation that came later. But we went, and and we were we were in Deauville, France, for a G20 meeting or something. I don't even remember what it was. But we had that meeting with Medvedev. And the night before, uh, we had the draft treaty, we, we had momentum, and we, we thought it was too, we're not in our interest, right? We pulled the plug on it. And um, Medvedev was, I've never seen him so upset. Uh, and because he had just fought through to get it through his National Security Council, which included Putin. And I think, you know, in retrospect, we should have, you know, done that as a, as, as something to help put uh, Medvedev, because these things are negotiated for years, right? And I think that was the beginning of the end with our cooperative period. And it's a little known thing. I mean, most people never heard of that an agreement, but um, so that was one. I, I also personally made mistakes as ambassador, but but that's another topic. Yeah, yeah, and we can talk about another thing, but you know, because you were known as that, we could talk about it later, but you know, you were known as the ambassador that kind of made, made using social media a safe thing, you know, make make it something as a part of diplomacy because based on the articles that I read, you were given a mandate by Secretary of State um, Hillary Clinton to do so. And so, and, and you immediately got into a lot of trouble with, with Medvedev, right? Who 
who said that you should be aware of Russian sensitivities because one of the first things you did was that you met with opposition leaders, including Navalny. Uh, well, let me let me be more precise. Um, so, uh, one of the in the first week I was ambassador, um, we had meetings between the U.S. government and opposition leaders. You're right. Uh, by the way, they were all members of parliament except one, including a communist. Uh, people forget about yeah, that part, yeah, but uh, it was a multi, you know, this is, this is yeah, standard operating yeah. procedure. But the meeting, just to be clear, was with the visiting deputy secretary of state, uh, Bill Burns. I was just accompanying Burns in that meeting. Uh, but everybody forgets about Bill and everybody remembers me because of my reputation, right? So. But 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 and but Terrell, I want to be honest about it. That was standard operating procedure for the Obama administration up to that point. In fact, when President Obama first made a trip to Russia uh, in 2009, he met with the opposition. Uh, he met with Boris Nemtsov and Gary Kasparov and and communists, by the way, Zugana, for instance, he was there. Yeah. But we had a uh, you know a multi-party roundtable with opposition leaders. And it was no big deal because it was a more cooperative period. When I when I arrived in 2011, there were massive protests, um, and that happened. But a footnote on Navalny: we invited him, he did not come. Um, oh, okay. And he never once met with me while I was ambassador, uh, despite my wanting to meet with him because that was our policy. And his, you know, very rationally, his argument was. Um, you know, why is what is what is the interest of me meeting with you? All that's going to do is fuel the propaganda machine that I'm your puppet. So we all never we never had a formal meeting. We physically encountered each other once for about 45 seconds. We were both at the 20th anniversary of a, of a newspaper called the Moscow Times. And he was a guest and I was a guest and he walked in. That's the first time I had shaken his hand in Moscow and, you know, 50 cameras took our photo and, uh, but, um, but he never, we, we actually never met when I was ambassador. I've met him subsequently. Uh, I met him here in Palo Alto because uh, he's come out here a few times. His daughter goes to school here, uh, but, but I never met him as ambassador. Gotcha. My last question to you is when you think about Ukraine right now, um, the, current administration is thinking about a bevy of sanctions that could hit the um that, that could hit the Kremlin and they range anywhere from again as I said earlier hitting Putin's inner circle to banks and so there's also been a question a about how sanctions work a lot of people don't understand how how they operate and then two is there a way to sanction Russia so that it really drives home the fact that what they're doing against Ukraine as unacceptable, doing so without uh, hurting the Russian people. Because one of the things that I feel like you tried to do um, through your social media was that you were trying to have a direct impact with the Russian people. You, you didn't only just use social media, but that was one of your most powerful tools. But you were trying to reach the Russian people. So how can sanctions hit, you know, deliver their desired effects without creating you know, um, inflation in ways that will turn the Russian people against us? That's a really hard question. And in this particular case, I don't think the Biden administration has good answers to do that. So in other cases of sanctions, uh, well, in some cases of sanctions, the people want the sanctions, right? Because they're against the regime. You know, you think of apartheid South Africa, the ANC supported sanctions. You do not have that kind of sentiment within Russia today number one. Number two, they've kind of exhausted, well, in their view, I don't, I don't know if this is true, but in their view, they've exhausted the targeted sanctions. And so they're planning to go after, you know, entities that will affect Russian people. So, you know, take Sberbank, the largest state-owned bank in Russia, you know, the vast majority of Russian citizens do their banking in Sberbank. And so if Sberbank is sanctioned and, and they're no longer able to transact in dollars, that will affect millions of Russians. That, that, and there's no way around that. And, um, and, I, and so I, you know, my own hope is that it doesn't get to that. I hope that by articulating what the sanctions will be now, it creates a deterrent for Vladimir Putin from taking action. But I'm not, 
I'm not optimistic in predicting that. Yeah, I, I would love. I know you, I, your time is short because I want to talk to you more about that because I have a view of, you know, the current sanctions are kind of outdated right now. They're still ongoing because you know you you, you know they're outdated and they need to be refined and adjusted. You know, I think that there are plenty of opportunities because part of it is dealing with kleptocracy in the West that enables, you know, Russia to offshore its money in real estate and Western institutions. And that's something that you could do without impacting the Russian people. So I have my own ideas as somebody who doesn't work in government, but as somebody who studies this very carefully. But I'll talk to you about that in another conversation, Ambassador. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you took time to talk with me. I've always found you to be a fascinating person, and um, I'm happy that I stayed up long enough to see those <laughs> to see those emails and so that we could talk. I'm, I'm thank you so well, much. Thank you, Terrell, for having me, and thank you for the the kinds of questions we had today. That some of the questions you asked me today, I've been doing interviews for 30 years, and nobody's asked me those kind of questions. So I really appreciate that. That's that was very refreshing. But well, thank you. I mean, I hope that the education at the University of Illinois really was uh, was useful for something, you know. <laughs>